0: Welcome to Knot Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we dive into today's show, I want to be sure that you know about my online creative community, The Heroine's Knot. Every week, we explore a new heroine's tale and search out its archetypal and personal meaning. This is the space to deepen your own creativity and build lasting relationships with wise souls seeking both individual growth growth and collective healing for our society and for our more-than-human world. Learn more at my website, marisagoudi.com. Season 3, Episode 2, Art, Love, God, The Tragedy of Liadon and Kurcher. Our guest is Bethany Hegedus. Bethany is a children's picture book author, whose books include the award-winning Grandfather Gandhi, co-written with Arun Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, as well as Alabama Spitfire, the story of Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, and Rise, From Caged Bird to Poet of the People, Dr. Maya Angelou. Bethany's books have been listed on A Mighty Girl's Best Books and Kirkus's Best Books of the Year. A former educator, Bethany is an in-demand keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor who speaks and teaches across the country about writing, creativity, resilience, and privilege. She holds an MFA in writing for children and young adults, and is the founder and creative director of The Writing Barn, a writing retreat and workshop space in Austin, Texas. She's also the host of the popular Courage to Create podcast.
1: I am so grateful to have my friend Bethany here with me today to discuss this story of Leodun and Kurohor. But as is our way on the show, first we let the story speak for itself. And then we'll dive into all the ways that it still matters. Leodin was the finest poet of her age. She was a superstar. Think Sinead O'Connor before that Saturday Night Live appearance. This is a story about passion and God, about breaking rules and being broken by the rules, about the inescapable need to make art and inescapable loss. This is the story of a superstar after she tears herself out of the spotlight too. It was festival season. The poets and the bards were all on tour, walking from wrath to wrath, between Tua and Tua, from fort to fort, between clan and clan. A few of the artists would have ridden a donkey, perhaps, but only those who had rich fathers or generous patrons. This is a story about the things that don't change over time. Leoden was definitely the type to walk. She had long since learned that she could only rely on her own wits, her own resources, and her own two feet. The sandals beneath her robes were the combat boots of her day. Her hair was strange and short because she had cut off all her braids before she left her home in Korkogwivna, down in West Kerry. There'd been no ceremony about taking the blade to hair that had never been cut before. This story isn't about all that Liadin had seen and endured in her younger years. But if you asked, she might tell you that she was cutting herself loose from a lifetime of trauma. She hoped that some of the demons would fall away with her locks. Liadin was surely composing a poem about it in her head as she made her way north, but she wasn't the type to share her process. When the time was right, the words would just emerge from her, fully formed, all art and fury and truth. It was a rare thing then to be a woman poet, but such creatures were not unheard of. Most gatherings seemed to include at least one poet who beat the odds and proved she could lay down verses as strong and as light as the lad. Liadin had fought her own battles to be amongst that company, and she saw no end to the fighting, or so she'd say. She used her strength to reinforce her armor, and she used strength to stay tender inside so that the words would have a soft, fertile space to seed and grow. She was good at this. She had made this festival circuit enough summers to think she knew all there was to know about being heard and keeping her heart and body safe. When she rounded the bend at Galway Bay and saw Gira's great fort surrounded by tents and stalls, she pulled herself a bit taller. This was the greatest gathering in the entire province of Connacht. They loved their artists here, but they could be cruel to a poet who wasn't always nimble with phrase and pure of voice. Liadin soon fell in with her summer friends, the folks who shared their fires and gave her a safe place to unroll her blanket. It was a time of firelight and song, ale and excitement. On the third night, Liadon had the attention of the entire gathering. She recited her poems around the king's own fire. She wove them a story from her own land, a poem of the great hag, the Kalyak, who had turned to stone while waiting on her own true love, Mananon, the god of the sea. The crowd heard a story of romance and longing. Leoden herself was half in love with Mananon, but deep down, she knew she was telling the story of a powerful woman who might just become all the more powerful in her loneliness. The applause was great, and when she sat near the king after her performance, many came to offer a bit of mead or meat in tribute. One man hung back and waited until all the other fans had had their say. Leaden knew who this fair-haired man in the crimson cloak would have to be. Somehow their paths had never crossed, but their destinies had somehow already started to entwine. One always left town before the other arrived, and they only had the stories of each other to hold on to. It was Kurhar, the poet. Some of Liadin's most ardent admirers whispered that the only other poet who could match her skill was this fellow. That night, however, Kureher was not looking for a challenge. He was making a proposal. Liadin, your poetry has moved my soul. Tomorrow I will have an ale feast in your name, with the king's permission, of course. It was an afterthought, the way Kureher looked over to Gira. Kuraher was overcome with something deeper than loyalty to the local royal. The ale feast held the very next night was grand, and Leodin was properly impressed, though she didn't like to show it. Both Leodin and Kuraher performed for the crowd, and neither could be decided the better, because they were both marvelous beyond belief. At a quiet point in the festivities, Kuraher took Leodin's hand. Will you be mine, dear Liadin? A son of ours would be a poet remembered in Ireland for the rest of time. Now, Leodin had been propositioned many times before, and she knew what was actually being asked. For all of Cureher's skill at poetry, there was no need to wrap pretty words around a request to do what bodies have always done before there was language or rhyme. She tossed her hair, and then remembered she only had a set of curls cropped close to her skull. She was no maiden to blush and be bedded in one. No, Kurahar, I will not. Not yet. I have a tour to complete, dates to be met. But you may meet me at my home in Korka There will be the place where we can make the time for us. Before they parted, each to their own route along the trail of livestock fairs and harvest festivals, they did get close and closer. They were both driven half mad with the wanting of the other, but Leoden wasn't willing to risk being the poet who had to speak for two. No lord or king would allow an unescorted pregnant woman to spin verse around his hearth, and Leoden had worked too hard to suffer such shame. They parted with promises and dreams of what might happen when they could finally settle together for a season and more. The winter winds were heavy with snow when Kurcher made his way to Liadin's home. He didn't feel the cold; he was so lit up with desire about to be sated. He would finally meet his match fully and have her completely when he finally reached the door of her dwelling-place and was admitted inside. He was struck dumb in a way that the festival crowds would never believe. And for good reason, there was his Liadin, huddled with three other women, veiled heads bowed. They didn't notice him enter. They were so deep in prayer. It was not poetry, but talk of a God on a cross that spooled from Liadin's perfect ruby lips. Liadin, my love, what is all this? You wear a costume and speak the part in someone else's story. She looked up and saw that man, her summer lover for whom she almost gave all. This was the man for whom she would have sacrificed her freedom, her art, her career. This was the man who came before. This was the man who came after. her, you did come. I had not expected it. Liadin. I made my promise and I am not a man to break my word. I barely know you. How could I know that you were a man of your word? He stepped forward and reached out to lift away her veil, to prove to her that he was a man of action, a poet who could make his words real. She pulled back and her veil fell to her shoulders in the process. Your hair, you look like a weak young babe, her gasped. But Leoden's shaved head did not make her look weak. Her eyes looked enormous and fierce. Her cheekbones stood out like holy blades, and her mouth looked like it might whisper forth every secret in the universe. I don't look like a weakling infant. I look like me. Her voice was full of anguish and pride and knowledge of something so deep, so dark. It defied everything that a blonde, sun kissed man like Kurher could ever imagine. No, perhaps Kurher couldn't imagine all that darkness that she'd been born into. Perhaps he couldn't understand what a woman on the road had to endure. Perhaps he could never really understand her past, but he could fulfill his promise and make her future something that was less difficult to bear. He'd fallen in love He'd meant it. I'm still yours. Wherever you walk, I will follow. And so, without nearly the amount of discussion that one might think necessary for two rock star poets in love to change the entire course of their personal and professional lives, they took themselves to the nearest monastery. Leonin set a fast pace in those combat boot sandals of hers, and her veil blew in the wind like her long hair once did. Along the way, she described to her would-have-been lover that for many years she had been trying to outrun her demons as she had wandered between forts and festivals. She had been about to give it all up and considered this her final season on the circuit. She was known as a fierce voice of the goddess, singing songs of the old ways. But she had heard the word of the new god on the lips of many priests and saints in her travels. Their way seemed the gentler one or at least it seemed quieter and safer. And she was so weary of the crowds and what horrible things could happen in the midst of hundreds of people, both when she was at the center of attention and when she was just one amongst the horde. Liadin told Kurahar that she was speaking true when she said she did not want a baby. She was not lying when she declared that her career mattered. It's just that she had not told him that she was already thinking of stepping away from it all and sharing her verses only with the Christian God when she saw his dark eyes reflecting in the firelight at that festival. It was too difficult to describe the torment she felt when she saw Korah and felt this new fire begin to burn within her when she had already decided to commit to the single flame of the church's candle. I cannot love you and build a life upon a broken vow. I have seen too many broken promises in my time. I was born in a house where every jest, every taboo, every solemn promise was pissed away. I am a woman of my word, even if everyone in my lineage was a liar. Kureher didn't know this dark history of hers, but he found that he wanted to. He wanted to know, not because he was a poet always searching out a good story, but because this woman mattered to him. He nodded, suddenly willing to take whatever scraps of a life Liadin could offer him. And so he walked with her to the monastery, beginning to understand that they were not heading to a marriage ceremony, but another sort of oath-taking entirely. They were greeted by a clergyman named Kumon, the man was kind and had a sweet sort of smile. He was the essence of welcome itself and not just because he was glad the entertainment had arrived in time for the party. He was unimpressed by Liadin and Korohar's fame and barely let on that he had heard of them at all. Instead, his eyes lit up as he understood their true intentions. You too, I see it in your eyes. You are destined for Anam Khardra. Yours is a soul friendship that will thrive in this life and in the eternal life in heaven. This, this is no earthly union. You have choices to make. Will you be joined by sight or conversation? Kurhar was confused. Choice? What kind of choice is that? This is a sacred marriage, my boy, said Kumon. You may gaze at one another, sharing the wisdom of God that comes through the eyes, the windows to the soul, or you may raise your voices together in prayer. Kurher knew that if he had to gaze on Leodin's untouchable face, he'd go mad. With poetry, there was always hope. Words leave us with our words. And so they began a life together that was marked by a permanent, church-blessed, separation. They would spend hours on either side of a wicker screen, learning one another's stories and composing verse together. They did speak of God, too, and devotion to heaven grew right beside their devotion to one another. And yet, this marriage was not a marriage that could truly sustain them. Liadin and Korahar weren't simply vessels for words and prayer. They were human creatures ruled by their own human hearts and terrifically human bodies. Liadin especially found that she could not live this half-life and keep up this half-love. She had not slept in a season. She went to Kuman and described the sickness that had taken hold of her. She needed more than Kurher's voice. She needed to know for certain he shared the same air and saw the same stars. Kuman loved his young postulates like the children he could never have. He agreed they would be reunited and share the same hut even after the sun went down. A young novice would sleep between them to preserve their vow of chastity. As soon as Liadon and Kurahar were able to look at one another and clasp their hands together, it was as if they were both made whole again. But love like this is greedy and just a bit more is never near enough. They both believed the other to be firm as Irish oak in their pledge to forswear the needs of the body. They both screamed silently within. Once the sun did set and the communal meal was done, they made their way to their shared hut where Leodin was sure she would sleep the sleep of the angels, contented to hear her beloved's even breath lull her into the deepest peace but the mind has a way of making soulful promises the body cannot keep the young man who was sent to chaperone the couple never would say what happened that night but it was clear to everyone in the community that the couple did not pass into prayerful sleep some say that liadan drugged the lad others say kurher threatened him and forced the young man to dig a tunnel out of the hut to leave the lovers in solitude. Some say the young man knew a romance of the ages when he saw it, and bound his eyes and stopped up his ears so that Liadon and Kurokhor could have the illusion of privacy. You don't need to be well-trained in the affairs of women and men to know the pair had the look of ecstasy and agony about them once the sun came up. Kuman was as kind a Christian father as you could ask for but he was not the sort of man who was interested in rebellion or romance. Kruher was sent away before breakfast. And that's when Liadin's story, which had been marked by sorrow and stress for so long, took a turn into greater tragedy. She had given up her life's great passion for fear of all the ways it might end. She had rushed to take the church's veil before her beloved could come and make her his wife. And then, when they had been given one more night, they lost themselves to passion so that they could be given no more. Kurahar was exiled to a far off monastery on an island full of old men and migrating birds. It was a lonely place of hollow hearts and hollow bones. The echoes of muttered baritone prayers and the shriek of gull song were all he could hear. He longed for his beloved's sweet, sweet voice but in time, his longing heart turned hard. The news reached him when at last, Liadim let her hair grow long and left Kumans monastery behind. Bakurhar did not rush toward her. Instead, he was certain that every moment since he met that powerful poet with the great wide eyes and the holy blades for cheekbones had been his ruin. His body and soul had become as dried out as a surplice soaked in salt water and left out in the sunshine. He fled toward the setting sun in a coracle without an oar or sail. He drifted beyond the ninth wave. Kurahur melted into the mists and into the myth, and only those migrating seabirds had news of where his pilgrimage took him, and no one was ever sure their tales were true. Liodin reached the island where Curraher had taken his exile so willingly, keening for all the choices she'd made and all the fears she had held too close. It was amongst the saddest songs ever sung in Ireland, and this was a land that knew every flavor of loss and lamentation. If the Kalyak turned to stone, waiting for her beloved Monanon to return, Liodin realized she was made of softer stuff. She melted into tears there on the flagstone beach where Corher most loved to pray. Liadan's last breath shaped a wordless wail and she died there on the shore. The brothers of the bird swarmed monastery buried her beneath that stone so she could catch her beloved's footfall if the waves ever brought Corher's coracle back to her. Sinead, that's my story. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for sitting with me and holding it
2: with me. Oh, happy to. Happy (laughs) to. You have a voice that I could listen to forever, as well as just the beautiful phrasing, like the myths and the myth, and just on the edge of my seat the entire time. Thank you. As
1: someone who, a writer like you, who has held space for so many writers, that means so much. So I've just gotten to say a lot of words. I'm interested in hearing what strikes you about this story.
2: So much about women and creativity and love and faith and running from our problems and turning to emotion and integrating our past and so so much like fertile ground in this story that like pertains to female journeys today in the creative arts as we move about the world as we put our words into the world as we look to as leah didn't get paid for our work that her career was very important to her. At the end, it was important to her love and she made that matter for herself. And I think that is such an important thing that still is needed to be said to women today, despite a room of her own and all of the incredible female creators we've had and female identifying creators we've had over time. There still is this clash between love and art and career and outward journey and inward journey it kind of is all wrapped up in there together so I can't wait to like dig in a little bit more those are my first thoughts yeah I mean, that's a
1: remarkable thing, right? I mean, it's both inspiring and more than a wee bit depressing. This is, of course, this is from a medieval (laughs) Irish manuscript, right? Like, we're thinking this is somewhere around 700, 800, when the story was first recorded. And who knows how many generations had remembered it before, you know, the monastic scribes put it down on paper, but it's that you you just want to say like, but we, we knew all this stuff. We knew that this was hard. So this is the part where it's important probably to note what was Definitely in the source material. So this is still written down in two manuscripts we have. I sort of made up the festival and her appearance there. And when the the Sinead O'Connor piece came in, that sort of wrote a lot of that for me. And uh-huh. the, the first line always surprises me. I never know who's going to end up being the muse. But her did proposition her. She did say, no, I can't. I've got work to do. But she did leave the door open for him to come find her. And it's mysterious as to why she had decided to take the veil in that intervening time. But mm-hmm. they did then go together to the monastery, were given that choice that you may have sight for conversation. And there was a, a young monk who was put in there with him, who I think the exact quote from the manuscript was something along the lines that Kuman, Threatened him with death if he didn't tell him. And that pretty, pretty much the, the young monk was like, You'd rather die than hear me say what happened, was kind of the words from the manuscript. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, I, you know, I, remembering the source, this is coming through, because yes, of course, yes. any thought of them being together would have been a fate worse than death. And then they did, in fact, go, her, her was exiled. Leoden did go and find him, but he did take off and set off into that rudderless boat off into his fate when she died there on the spot so yes I embellished it and shifted it for our times but the bones of it were there where she said no I've got my art I'm not gonna run off and give it all up for a man I just met which sounds like a line from a Disney movie
2: (laughs) (laughs) or should be a line potentially well more and more it is (laughs) more more it is these days but also you know, I think maybe that's part of like what we wrestle with in these modern times as female creatives is who owns our heart, where is the room for our art and our families and our other passions because our heart is part of like the world's healing, right? And our words are part of the word's healing and our moving about the world is part of the world's healing. And how we can't be two places at one time. We can't be out in the world and at home. Or can we? Because here we are out in the world. Our voices will be traveling out in the world and you are safe and cuddly and cozy up in your hamlet up there in the mountains. Here I am in Austin, Texas. Like, you know, I think the internet age and this digital age has maybe changed some of that for us. And I find myself here we are at this stage in the pandemic, kind of like Leoden, like in what ways do I want to go back out into the world? I still want my work to travel into the world, but I do like my body here at home with my family. And, and how are we wrestling with all of that after a prolonged, period of time where we've had to stay home and moving about is still such a consideration on so many different levels. So yeah, I didn't realize any of that before we started talking, that that was like, kind of like wrestling inside of me. But she also, you know, stated, maybe it's time for me to get quieter. And, you know, that I think the beautiful phrasing you used was, you know, about attending to one flame. Mm In her story is the flame of faith and turning away from sourcing all from the goddess and listening to this potentially quieter way. But also, right, which we know was kind of co-opted by men in the long run. And she was eventually kind of punished for that in her own way, right? She lost her love. And no great love story can ever end on a happy note, right? It would cut off at the happy ending and not the art house film which like takes you into the marriage and you know into what's next yeah
1: right yeah especially in any celtic story like i was it's funny like as i was reading i was like oh
0: my word i'm doing it again like here we are with another great tragedy you know Uh, when i had so last season i had on our mutual friend
1: melinda louse when we did the deirdre story
0: Um, season before that i had another mutual friend of ours barb suarez who came on and
1: we did the Macha story. And all of these are these unions that end terribly. But <laughs> such is such is the way of many of these. You know, Sophie Strand came on and told the story of Tristan Isolde Like, of course, when we even
0: culturally now, who do you think of as the two greatest lovers of all times? We say Romeo and Juliet, forgetting that they were young teenagers who both died. And you know, we instead hold this up as if that
1: is some sort of ideal because oftentimes our cultural reading is this deep. I'm holding up fingers very yes. close to show the depth <laughs> of how we look at things. But I want to loop back to what you were saying around this idea of audience, because I've been very preoccupied with that myself. And in that sense of, because I too hold space for creatives. It's kind of a different creative incubator cauldron um, than you do. And But there's a lot of commonalities you in hold our work.
2: space for me as wow, well. I've taken one of your yes. courses. Then. Yes opened myself to to the way that you experienced the world, which was beautiful for me.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful to count you amongst my heroines who've been in those spaces with me. But I know what we think of so often in that group is that sense of audience and knowing that that is something that preoccupies creatives and always has, which I kind of love This story shows that to us, is that she was able to either compose the poetry to be spoken at the festivals, to be said out loud and heard by the king and by all the people of any given community. And that the other choice was that sense of you can quietly compose your poetry for your monastic community or just for God. And I think there's, at least I've done this myself, there's there's that fantasy of, well, wouldn't it be easier if I could just write this for me? And I wouldn't have to worry about whether or not it would fit in the marketplace or whether there's anybody who cares to hear it or whether it gets too strange or too saccharine or too predictable or too odd. And I've had that fantasy before of like, what if I didn't have to keep showing up and had this need to be heard Mm. and to be seen? And then, of course, recognizing when I pause and say, yes, but my art, as I understand it, it's always been part of my need to contribute something because if given the chance, I don't necessarily believe that the monastic lifestyle is one for me, but it's interesting to fantasize about what if I didn't have to raise my voice to be heard by the crowd.
2: I think as I work with creatives and live a creative life myself for over 20 years and am 12 books in and have a number of coming out that to me audience is always us first and i write for myself i write to figure out myself i write to figure out the world i urge writers to like call upon their pain you know in the ways that Dun did it talking about eventually you know she which I find interesting because she wasn't talking about her own personal pain. She was keeping that separate. And that's what I urge writers to go into. But at the end of the story, she melted into tears, into her emotion, into her longing, into her sadness. And we, in your relating of the story, we don't know what that last word she uttered there on the shore was.
1: I would say it wasn't a word. I think she lost language at that
2: point. lost language at that point. Okay. So, and that's just in terms of like beingness, right? So our beingness is a part of our capacity to express ourselves. And I think if we start there, I think the fears of the marketplace, it's like, they won't want me. I'm too much this. I'm too much that. What I share with writers is lean into those things, those oddities, and the things that make you weird and strange and complicated are going to be the reasons you're told no for a very long time until people awaken to your yes. Because if you have that fire, and we know we're all the same and we're all so individual, you know, and we all have our individual experiences, but if we think about what is personal in our writing and personal in our lives, that transcends into some type of universal experience. Like, you know, we're talking today about longing. We're talking today about love. We're talking today about moving about the world, our artistry as women, and, you know, our voices being heard and seen. And I think if you... You don't have to scream to be heard. You don't have to change to be heard. And it may take longer for recognition in the way that the world offers it, will come knocking on certain people's doors. But that when we hear and listen to ourselves, And when we hear and listen to the others in our communities, you know, like where you said the monastic community or your fellow group of writers or your fellow group of creators, we're being heard all the time, even if it isn't on that grand public sphere of like the festival circuit or publishing is and how publishing is changing and things and who can be heard and who can't be heard and who deserves to be heard and who deserves to be heard when Like, we just keep sharing our truth, our truth, our truth. And when ready, the world will listen.
1: Oh, you're a wise, wise woman, my friend. (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's just bomb to so many artists' souls. I think when we get caught up in this modern-day machine of everything. Cause it's, it's so ironic that with, there's as many microphones as there are people with cell phones out there these days. And yet yes. we still get caught in that sense of, Oh, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't be heard. And you look back to Leodon's day where you'd be lucky if one woman would be allowed to have a space at a festival, yeah. which is not a I, medieval problem. That is a problem I. within our <laughs> lifetime. It is that sense of, it's a matter of scale. I think we keep talking about that in that sense of like, we're talking at the the scale of the human heart. We're talking about the state of the world and what it means to be someone trying to make their dent and make a creation in the midst of it. And we always live in between those two polarities, neither ever completely part of some great vast universal collective, nor are we ever one single solitary being. Making, breathing, being alone.
2: Yeah. And it goes back to she said, I matter. She -hmm. said, the work matters. Mm -hmm. And we have to be brave enough to say that to ourselves because when we aren't saying it, that's when we are too focused on outer acceptance instead of inner acceptance. And I don't know anyone in by 20 plus years of pursuing publication and now, I don't know, 13 years of being a published author and have known people who've gotten movie deals and bestseller lists and all sorts of the outer accolades that either kept them producing good work, their best work, their deepest work, and didn't cause a stumbling block, potentially, you know, all these outer trappings that we think we may want. And also that found outer acceptance as giving and life-affirming as inner acceptance. It fades away way too quickly. It evaporates way too quickly. And the thing about conjuring words and conjuring characters and story and and the way that you do and the way that i do and, and the way that some of your listeners may or long to do that for themselves is that we have the power to conjure that every day we don't need others in our art form we're not a choreographer who needs a dancer we're not a director an actor we're not a painter who even needs you know a painter possibly is similar to writer but we can conjure art in our head and our heart it can be oral it can be written down it can be something that's saved for our five minutes of rest at the end of the day And it can also be done in five-minute increments that builds like the novel of all time. Right. There's really no one else's permission we need but our own.
1: Mm -hmm. Amen. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And before you and I started recording, you mentioned that one of the things you were really aware of when you had seen this story before when I had sent it to you just a few days ago, the ink is not quite dry on this baby. <laughs> you had mentioned that as a children's book author, you were really sort of intrigued by those hints at her backstory of uh-huh. whatever it was that she still marched with, whatever it was that she still, you know, was wrapping her poetry around.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'd love
1: for you to say more about that.
2: I think we all idealize childhood when we're past it and or when we're potentially raising a child or helping form a young one. We look back at like this time of innocence and beauty and, you know, just something. And childhood is difficult. It's where you're experiencing everything for the first time. It's where you are being told lies for the first time, where you're telling lies for the first time, where you're putting on a mask to try to fit in, where you are seeing conflict in the world and in your families and maybe not fully understanding it. We're coming up with different ways to navigate all of that. And yet from the outside, we're told, oh, child, it's so beautiful. And it is beautiful, but it is very, very messy. We don't have a lot of self-confidence yet. We don't know what our strengths are. It's a lot of trial and error. And for me as a children's author, to remember childhood is to place myself back in childhood. And not to remember through like the veil of nostalgia, but through... The action of what does it feel like, again, to have my heart hurt for the very first time or to wonder about peace and justice or to try to make sense of the world for myself as a children's biographer, sometimes through the lives of others, actual lived people and not characters. And also anything in our society is somewhat discounted if it's for kids, it's teachers aren't paid as much as college professors and whatever. But you ask anyone at a cocktail party, in a university, you know, wherever, the White House, like, what was the book that spoke to you as a kid? Like, people's faces light up. That's where you fall in love with literature and you fall in love with story because you're out to figure the world out. And you know, you don't have all the answers then. As adults, we pretend we know all the answers. As kids, we're just asking a lot of questions.
1: It's so interesting that there's so much there, but what it makes me think of is I have a 13-year-old now, oh. and she refuses to even think about the books that I was picking up at 13, because I was definitely already in the adult section of the library. Oh. And part of that was just a function of the 90s, there hadn't been that great blossoming of young adult fiction yet. And we were sort of forced over there. And I read the Thornbirds entirely too young and had <laughs> an entirely strange perspective on what priests might do. But that's a tale for another day. It's remarkable how she doesn't want to wander over. She wants to have the stories that she's not a kid who's in, interested in love stories yet. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult place to be at 13 yeah. in terms of longing for Adventure and presence, but without it all getting tangled up in romantic relationships. Give her a kid on a quest. Hopefully, there's no kissing. She always gets betrayed by book three if they start with the kissing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Takes the (laughs) book (laughs) three.
1: Love it. Yeah, Yeah. but she's got bookshelves full of things, so she's like, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. And I'm just, I'm proud of her for really kind of saying, like, no, I know where what really lights me up right now, please don't force me out into somebody, you know, out of the garden onto some other road that isn't mine yet.
2: Well, and just experiencing adventure and perhaps love and is it an adventure of its own, but isn't something that's driven by a clock. Right. And also, also maybe, you know, and like we are talking here today in this story, The second love enters the picture, you're asked to give up certain things about yourself and you're asked to make concessions and you have someone else to consider. And these kids on a quest are out to save the world. Mm. And does the world need saving right now? Heck yes. That is really cool. She's still intent on giving ourselves opportunities to save the world before it gets muddied by any of that personal stuff and the the choices that we're told we have to make. And what if we don't have to make them? What if we can empower ourselves always, always? I think it's very telling in this story, too, that Leodin didn't, you know, her work came first. You know, this sounds like a, not a later in life love because lifespans were not, but she had achieved certain things for herself before potential love even entered the picture for her. And that's interesting to me. Right. Yeah. I couldn't help but flash
1: back to the way in which my first true love when I was 17, I stopped writing. Mm -hmm. he was the writer he was working on a more ambitious project at the time literally i set my work down for years Mm -hmm. and i i'm sure i was aware of that in the back of my mind when i found this story and kind of said oh Mm -hmm. this one hurts Mm -hmm. at a level that was how many of us Mm -hmm. choose love in our teens or in our 20s before we have as you know that phrase before we found our voice and then the work becomes the decades of recovering it and finding it and finding our places in community, you know, creative communities like you and I hold, because people have had those early wounds that may be being told as a child that you can't write or some mean old English teacher. Because my goodness, the ghost of English teachers that get conjured <laughs> with me and my clients. It's amazing how much space those people take oh, up.
2: And their uh-huh. red pens. And the
1: red pen. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, but yeah, so whether it's being told you weren't smart enough as a kid or that that it's that teacher who said you couldn't do it or whether it's that lover who your story became a story of passion and got written on the body perhaps more than on the page, and it takes a long time to get back,
2: yeah, it's funny for me I married young and divorced young, and I. After I divorced Young, I moved to New York City to become an actor and became a writer instead and had always been writing. I wasn't a very good actor and and really think I was in love with story. But I did marry Young and thought to myself, I hadn't given myself creative opportunities yet. I wanted creative opportunities. And I thought to myself this person loves me, like maybe love is only offered once, like, and this was young love, like 19. Yeah. And, I, and I chose that. And then because we didn't have a family, we were married for six years. It was a young military family. My ex was a Marine that I met on the 4th of July. <laughs> That's its own little story. But I then kept that burning alive. I was like, well, can I have both? And I couldn't then because I wasn't ready for both. And I didn't know what I wanted to say yet. So it's also very hard when we don't know what we have to say because we're living. We have to live to have something to say and experience things and be given opportunities. And thankfully today, younger writers are given opportunities at a very young age and but to know that at each level of our development, what do I want to say? What do I have to say? And so for me, I was like, I can't have that. So I can have this instead. And then like lead in, I didn't find my second marriage, my current marriage, my forever marriage until I was 39 and had, had already been published. And then I was like, okay, now I can forge a family because my work is out in the world and that will help me keep it out in the world instead of just going insular into the family and allowing this, you know, like what's next for me? I don't know, right? As books are out in the world and, you know, the call of family is strong and the the needs of others. But I just think it's as creatives, we can't go underground with it. We can't give it up. We can't Mm -hmm. pretend it doesn't matter. We can't stop. And if we do, you know, like when you stopped because the dude's project was, you know, more important or whatever, you went underground with your creativity and it took you years to resurrect that. Now you go through that process with others. But the thing about creativity is. It's always there bubbling, always, always, always. And you just have to listen to that, you know, listen to it and participate as much as you can. Like it urges you, creativity is action, not just imagination, it's action. Putting pen to the page, fingers typing across the keyboard, dancers thrusting their legs in the air, you know, whatever it is, It's action and imagination together.
1: Yeah. I think I've heard somewhere that prayer is our words in action. And I feel as if you've just offered us that with those closing lines. And I want to just call in the sense of the both and Mm. that you always are that person to me and that. This story doesn't have it. And though we were pointing out ways in which, God, we haven't really evolved that much since the Middle Ages, if we're still telling this story, those choices that Leoden felt like she had to make, that she could either be a poet or she could be a wife. She could either have a life of safety and security or she could have a great passion. But I think that just serves as that reminder. We give, we have tragedies yeah. in order to remember that it doesn't have to be this way
2: we can make new choices we can write new endings right and that's the power of writing is in the revising and the revising is the trying again the writing new endings taking new turns allowing ourselves to stumble and fall and get back up and go underground with our creativity and bring it back to life letting our voice be heard putting it out there in the universe and knowing, knowing that the right people will hear the right people will discover the right people will open their hearts and recognition is about that spark that gets lit in them, not people turning and pointing like, Oh, that's it over there. It's that both. And like you said, your spark alights my spark. Our sparks alight other sparks. and spark brought us both such light today, even as we talked about, you know, some difficult things. Well, Bethany, thank you for shining your
1: light and lighting the spark for me and for so many. I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about where to find you and your amazing work? And-
2: oh, yes. So... You can find me on bethanyhegedus.com, long, hard name, but I know it's there in the show notes. (laughs) And you can find out about my books there from biographies of President Jimmy Carter to Maya Angelou, to my work with Arun Gandhi, grandson of the Mahatma. And we have new work coming out in 2023 as well. And... On my personal website, you will also find out information about the Courage to Create community, which is a global community of writers who are at various stages of their careers, various stages of their journeys and genres. It's an open genre space, even though we're primarily children's book heavy, since that's where I've made my name. But we have memoirists and adult novelists and genre writers and journalists, all sorts of people, and um, really looking to keep the courage to create, to know that creativity is not a competition, and to champion ourselves and each other as we move towards our milestones being met. And that comes from showing up. And Others can also find information at the Writing Barn, which is a writing retreat and workshop space, both in person here in Austin, Texas, and in the virtual world. We went virtual pre-pandemic, and we have intimate classes and webinars and industry gatherings with agents and editors and all things publishing all the time. The writing barn.com. Writing, because it's a process, not writers, which is ownership. Writing barn.com. It was once a working horse barn with horses training in a riding ring next door to it. So a little pun, a little pun as well. I am, in fact, a writer, um, so puns are important. The writing <laughs> I I live, sleep, and breathe books. And the writer journey is so important to me. And that's why you're coming to visit my community soon because of the important work of the heroine's journey and understanding our choices and the ability to take risk and listen to our internal selves. So would love to have some folks visit me at those websites and online on Twitter and Instagram. And there you go.
1: Perfect. Uh, Well, Bethany, I'm so excited we get to find ways to keep playing together and exploring together and having the most beautiful, difficult conversations together.
2: So, Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way everyone is a lover of myth and story even if they've forgotten creating this show is a labor of love and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season 3 and beyond please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on substack where i'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub myth is medicine you can find out more about my writing my book our online creative community the heroines knot as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagoudi.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called the College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.